From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As hundreds of migrants arrive in Denver, understanding what's brought them here and how locals are trying to help in small ways and big. They're asking for a state-backed effort to have permanent shelters across Colorado. Denverite's Kevin Beatty has visited one of the temporary shelters and joins us. Then three Iranian-American women here on how protests in Iran compare to the U.S. civil rights movement. I think this is a really powerful moment for transnational solidarity. If we can recognize our common struggle. And later, a question through Colorado Wonders about the growing demand for food stamps in our state. At least one county is dealing with a weeks-long backlog. Your old or unwanted car still has value. Donate it to Colorado Public Radio. We'll help free up some space in your garage or driveway, and you'll help CPR bring the programs you value to listeners across the state. Any make, any condition, we'll take it. Start the safe and easy car donation process and find answers to your donation questions at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The arrival of hundreds of migrants in Denver from the southern U.S. border has raised a lot of questions, particularly given recent political moves elsewhere that target so-called sanctuary cities. The city of Denver this week opened an additional shelter to accommodate more arrivals. Let's get some perspective from Denverite's Kevin Beatty. Hi, Kevin. Hi. Tell us about this group that arrived last week. How did they get to Denver? So my colleagues have spoken to a couple of people who've come up from El Paso. Uh, It seems like folks took a bus. Um, The Greyhound lines between El Paso and Denver have been sold out for days. So we know that folks were coming to the U.S. border, were crossing in to declare asylum. You have to be present in the U.S. to declare asylum. So people show up to the border, Border Patrol picks them up, and they're allowed to hold on to folks for 72 hours, and then they get released. And there are a network of nonprofits in El Paso that are usually there to pick people up, give them a place to stay, help them figure out where they're going next. But because there have been so many people crossing in and being released by Border Patrol at once, um, services in El Paso are really full. Mm. And so you have people who are coming to other cities to find resources to help themselves get their feet on the ground and figure out sort of what's next for them. Are they choosing Denver expressly? Is it that the service providers in Texas know that there is more capacity here? So there is one large nonprofit in El Paso that has been coordinating with Denver nonprofits and sending about 50 people each month to a shelter space that was set up a couple of months ago. So there's some intention here. There is some intention in that. But the group that showed up last week Uh, It seems like they came independently of any nonprofit or organized effort. Hmm. Um, There is a processing center in El Paso where El Paso County will help people get on buses to places wherever they want to go. So it seems like that's how most people got here. Okay, this is El Paso County in Texas, not El Paso County in Colorado. Uh, That is to say then that uh, these are asylum seekers, These are folks who feel that they have been persecuted to some extent in their home countries and are seeking a better life in the United States for pretty specific reasons. 
that's what a lot of folks will have to prove to a judge if they want to stay. It's not a given that they'll be allowed to. Mm-hmm. Economic reasons, for instance, is not necessarily a good enough reason to declare asylum. But yes, you know, the folks that we've spoken to, they're here to work. They're here to get out of difficult conditions in their home countries and have gone through some pretty unreal journeys to get here to make that claim. Kevin, just to be explicit here, this is not similar to what we've seen in previous migrant arrivals where they have landed in a place perhaps lied to and unbeknownst to them, correct? Yeah, it doesn't seem to be the case. Okay, um, We haven't heard from the governors of Texas or Florida, um, but it seems like folks were not sort of fooled into coming here. Um, a couple of folks that our colleagues spoke to said they were given a choice of which city they wanted to come to, and they chose Denver. We mentioned that many of these folks are being housed in a city shelter in Denver. What are conditions like there you visited? So I got to go inside on Tuesday, and what I saw was it was a pretty calm scene, but there were a lot of cots set up in places that were lined with treadmills, uh, a lot of people milling around. Is this in a recreation center? Yeah, so this is a city-run rec center, and as I was there taking pictures, people were still coming in, lining up to get registered, find their cots. City workers were helping people get lunch, and you know, folks were mostly just sitting on their cots and hanging out. Um, it seems like a lot of people are still figuring out kind of how to get onto their next destination. Something of a, a holding pattern, I guess, they're in. And so what are their immediate needs at this point? Like I said, I met some people in the shelter, and it seems like people right now are just trying to get on their feet. You know, folks have finished a pretty long and difficult journey to get here. I saw some people with injuries, nursing injuries and things like that. And so, you know, ultimately what everyone needs to do is figure out how to apply for asylum, make sure that the government knows their address so they can get notifications for court dates and things like that. So that's sort of broadly what everyone is doing is Mm -hmm. like figuring out where they need to go. In the meantime and in the short term, The city is asking people for donations of clothing. They're asking faith communities for more space to house people. And so you have this sort of short-term need where people need clothes and they need sort of basic necessities. But then the need with more gravity right now is how do I apply for asylum so I can continue to stay here? And the public is indeed being asked for a lot of this help. City officials and nonprofits are predicting more migrants will show up, Kevin, over the coming weeks and months, I understand. Are there enough resources? I mean, because some of this is municipal, right, to help all these folks? I would think not. So there's a thing called Title 42. It's a policy that says because of the pandemic, we won't allow a lot of people who want to apply for asylum to even come in and make that claim. That was a Trump-era policy, right? Trump-era policy. The Biden administration did seek to end it, but has in the last couple of weeks sort of backpedaled a little bit, and they're trying to get an extension on this policy. Basically, on Wednesday, this policy is supposed to end. And that means that, you know, tens of thousands of people will suddenly be allowed to come in and make their claims for asylum. And immigration advocates and experts are expecting that there's going to be a huge influx of people. And so, you know, what does that look like for Denver? It's hard to say. If things continue like this and more and more people start coming here, the city shelter is already pretty full. The faith communities are trying their best to sort of add capacity to that, but... In addition to whatever needs they're already meeting. Right. And so people who run nonprofits at the border in El Paso that I spoke to, they're already tapped out and thousands of people have already been sort of dumped on the street over the last couple of weeks. And so the question is, what happens when all these folks are allowed to enter after Title 42 is gone? And I think it's going to be really difficult for cities, nonprofits, 
and activists to accommodate all those folks. There has been some discretion to this point uh, in the program, which is why some asylum seekers have been allowed in. But as you say, if the title is reversed, many more arrivals could occur. I know that some activists are lobbying the Polis administration in particular on this. Yeah, that's right. And for months, they've been asking the state to apply for federal money to set up shelters across the state. Because, you know, while a lot of people are coming to Denver, you know, people are heading into the mountains where there are jobs and things like that. Um, That hasn't happened yet. And, you know, they've been saying for months that we will begin to see more people coming to this state looking for a place to land as they work on their asylum claims and try to build a life here. And so they're asking for some sort of designation from state government? They're asking for a state-backed effort to have permanent shelters across Colorado. Great. Kevin, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Denverite's Kevin Beatty reporting on migrants coming to Colorado from the southern U.S. border. When we come back, three Iranian-American women in Colorado who say the protests in Iran have reached a tipping point. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. The story of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman beaten to death by the Iranian morality police for wearing her hijab too loosely, has been a rallying cry for protesters demanding change. It's one chapter, though, in a much longer movement. Since Amini's killing, there have been executions of demonstrators, mass arrests, and defiance of the morality police. CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassi met with three Iranian-American women who formed a group in Colorado to push for accountability and regime change in Iran. This is Shide Dashti. I'm an Iranian-American professor here at University of Colorado, Boulder. Hi, I'm Pupe Misagi. I'm also an Iranian-American. I teach at the University of Denver in the English department. I teach literary arts and studies. I'm a Farnish family, and I'm an Iranian-American. I've been living in Denver for about 10 years, and I'm active with the Women Life Freedom Colorado group here. So a lot of people in the United States are not probably paying as close attention as you all are to what's been happening there. And so I was wondering, do you think that we could make a comparison between what happened to George Floyd and what happened to Masha Amini? Because it seems as though the outrage that erupted as a result can be comparable. Do you agree? Yeah, I would. Um so what happened to Massa Gina Amini, you know, as a result of police brutality, state violence, those are things that we can draw parallels to within the U.S. And then, of course, she's not the first, and sadly she hasn't been the last either, which is also another parallel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think another similarity is the amount of, like, support and, like, people coming out to the streets. Um, I think this was just a tipping moment for um, the Iranian community, similar to what happened after George Floyd's murder. Um, 
people from like across different age groups, um, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic groups, um, they all have come to the streets, which I think is similar to like the extent of protests that we saw in the U.S. And I want to, um, if we even want to think deeper about this, Claudia Rankin, the amazing um, scholar who works on anti-racism and white supremacy, and she her book won the National Book Award a few years ago. She talks about how racism is something that happens and exists on the realm of imagination. So even our imaginations are racist. We can't really separate. It's not just actions. It's even how we imagine and how we think our unconscious is racist. And I think with the Iranian community, we see how patriarchy and like the totalitarian state starts from our imagination. So what is happening, I think, at this moment, similar to George Floyd's moment, is our imaginations are changing. A lot of things are coming out of unconscious to the consciousness, and the conversation and the discourse is changing as well. Shida, what do you think? Do you feel as though that there are some similarities between what happened to George Floyd and what happened to Massa? Yeah, I, I completely agree with Pupe and Arnush wanted to add uh, that the more general similarities with the civil rights movements in, here in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, uh, in, you know, just in, in, in general, I think Iran is a country where its powerful and freedom-loving women are relegated to the backs of buses and are worth half a man in the court of law while they don't have the right of choice over their own bodies. So this, all of this probably sounds familiar to our, uh, you know, American fans, especially the African-American community. Um, we in America have had and continue to have our own struggles with civil rights and human dignity. And we have a lot in common. Uh, this is a really a global disease um, that is manifesting in different ways in different regions of the world. And I, I don't think we can cure it without unity. So what lessons do you think can be learned from the Black Lives Matter movement and the response across communities after George Floyd's murder? Sheeta, do you want to answer that first? Sure. I, I think this is a really powerful moment for transnational solidarity. If we can recognize our common struggle for how repressive governments push for increasing control over women and women's bodies and um you know, this, this is, you know, we learned a lot from uh, what happened after the murder of George Floyd and how effective, I think, it, it made a difference how the international community showed um, solidarity. And uh, I, I hope we can do the same in, in this case to show solidarity for our Iranian colleagues, uh, cousins, brothers, sisters uh, that are being killed and um, are being discriminated against. What do you think, Farnish, about the same question? Yeah, I mean, I think what is also really interesting is that Masa Gina Amini is a Kurdish woman, yet, you know, all of Iran is really unified behind this revolution and this movement. And it's not just, um, you know, in some of the major cities like Tehran, but in, in some of the more religious cities as well. Um, in Kurdistan, in Baluchistan, everyone is rising up and has had enough of this regime. Do you think that the fact that she's Kurdish has an impact on how people responded? You know, I think it's interesting because everyone really unified behind her, if anything. And within Kurdistan, there have been more um, protests as a result. And I would also add 
the slogans and Zendigi Azadi originated from our Kurdish sisters' um, struggles for freedom. So Jian Azadi. Um, so it's not. I think it's we need to acknowledge like the continuation of this struggle, and the fact that it just didn't arise in this one moment. Um, they have been saying this slogan over and over again, and it was the women who were present at Masajina's funeral. The way they were present there, the way they um, shouted and protested and shouted like this slogan, it resonated with everyone and it was um, taken up by everyone across the country. So definitely it's important to acknowledge the courage of like our Kurdish sisters in Kurdistan. It's very important. Um, where we are today, I think is important. Or even like Kurdish fathers um, who in the following killings after Gina's killing, how they reacted to the brutal killing of their sons. This all resonates with parents with brothers and sisters around the country and then Sistan and Baluchistan happened so all these different locations they're all in conversation with one another. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of similar in many ways. For example, the slogan Black Lives Matter was always, you know, very much in the forefront. And I think another th- statement that you just made about it not being the first time, this isn't the first time that a woman has been killed for not wearing her hijab properly, but it's probably one of the first times that we've heard about it internationally and over such a long period of time, just like George Floyd's not the first Mm -hmm. person, obviously, who was killed. But I think it was just such an outrage to everyone. Is that do you think that that's part of the reason why that it was just so outrageous? Or why did she become a symbol in a way that perhaps other victims haven't in the past? I think a part of that answer kind of speaks to the power of media. So the journalist who first tweeted the picture of Masajina's parents embracing each other in the hallway of the hospital where she died. That journalist, Nilofar Hamidi, is actually now in prison for that tweet. So a tweet is the reason why she is uh, in, in prison right now. Um, but it was really that, that tweet, that picture that, you know, gave everyone this image of the depth of the brutality of this regime. And I just wanted to also add that Elahe Mohammadi is also in prison because she was the first to report about the funeral of Masajina Amini. And um, again, she got the story out there. That was enough to really enrage people and just, again, to show them the depth of the brutality. I think it's also important to acknowledge that these kinds of movements don't happen over time or these kind of reactions don't happen over time. So the fact that this has happened over and over and over again, that people have protested in smaller numbers in different ways with different actions, it's like at some point it reaches a level that it becomes like a national uprising, right? So I totally agree. Like the coverage is so important, but it's also how long can you be under such brutality, right? At some point, it's just the tipping point, right? Yeah, and everybody who maybe had been thinking things and feeling things feel called to act. Mm-hmm. Masha Amini, why would she have been in police custody to begin with? Because according to the standards of the morality police, she was not wearing her proper hijab. She was, um, some say she was not uh, wearing proper her scarf properly, so she was showing hair. And some say her mantle was not covering her body well enough. 
Um, and based on that, they could just arrest you. So when you said that her manto was not covering her body correctly, could you describe for our listeners what that means? So it's like you're wearing a long coat, but your pants are also showing underneath or you're wearing leggings and like people can see your leggings, right? Um, and depending on like what officers are on the location, because this is not like this is the law, but this is also like based on people's interpretation of the law. So one day you might just pass the van and you might be fine. Another day, the officer might be like, no, I want to arrest you today because this is not proper enough. Because maybe we can see your bangs or some strand of hair here Mm -hmm. and there or something like that. And so what is the normal thing that a member of the morality police would do to a person who might be showing a little bit of hair or maybe their leggings are appearing under their outerwear? I mean, it can range, right? Like, it's it's so arbitrary. It, it's entirely up to them. It, they could give you a warning. They can ask you to cover up or, you know, the other extreme is what happened to Massaw. Do you think it was because she might have said something in response to what they had said to her? I, I very seriously doubt it. I, I just wanted to uh, mm-hmm. add that it is it is really random. Um, and uh, their interpretation on the day that they arrest people, it, it really depends on the mood of the country and what's going on politically. And you know, there's just there's no option not to wear the hijab in Iran. It's just you know, the, uh, I remember as a teenager once being arrested wearing everything completely properly according to their definition I was just wearing sunglasses and they stop the morality police comes out and they um, arrest you they uh, force you into a van and then uh, they take you to jail and uh, your parents are supposed to come and uh, get you after you promise not to do whatever that you did again. So what was the impact that that experience had on you? It is traumatizing after, you know, if, it, it just happens to any, if you if you talk to every woman who has ever visited or lived in Iran, they have had an experience with the regime's brutality and inhumanity. Um, this is humiliating. It It, it is traumatizing. Um, you, you know, I, I try to suppress it um, and, and not think about, you know, what I experienced, the way I was treated over nothing. Um, you know, the control that the state has on the most basic right of a woman is, you know, what to wear when you go out. That's really traumatizing. Did either of you ever have experiences with the morality police that you can share with us? Well, I was raised here. I've lived in the U.S. most of my life. So um, I've only visited Iran as a tourist, really. And I did have an experience where you know, someone from the morality police asked me to cover up. And I didn't honestly understand. I was dumbfounded because I was wearing the hijab. I I did have um, a scarf over my hair and I did have the manteau on. But, you know, according to that person that day, it just wasn't enough or it wasn't proper enough. Um, But, you know, that didn't result in anything. It was just basically a warning and asking me to to cover up more. And then I moved on. Mm -hmm. I just am sitting here trying to imagine what it would feel like if somebody came up to me now in America and said, you know, if you don't put your head wrap on your head properly, we're going to take you in. It just seems so unbelievable. Did you have an experience with 
that as well, okay? I remember doing my undergrad there. Um, there were women guards at the entrance of the campus, and they would check whether you had like the proper hijab, whether you were wearing nail polish. If you had nail polish, they wouldn't let you in. You had to clean up, like, like you had to remove your nail polish. Or, um, I mean, the most um, brutal for me was like for my wedding ceremony with my ex, the morality police actually raided the party because it was a mixed party. We had music. They told us as um, the bride and groom, we could just go home, but they took like two vans of the guests. So we had to go to the court. It was like a very brutal, traumatic experience. Our parents had to go in. We had to sign that we are... um, we regret what we have done. We had to pay fines. So it's, and that this happens like for just people gathering in their homes. And again, like it's, it could be random, it could be targeted. So it is traumatic. CPR's Elaine Tassi speaking with three Iranian-American women in Colorado about the atrocities in Iran. Their discussion continues in this next half hour with what's different about the protests this time around. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. So many issues have wedged families apart the last few years. So but what if that science is junk, Mom? What if her science is junk? You know, it's but like... she's back. How one mother and daughter unwedged the issues that divided them. I desperately want a relationship with you where there isn't like stuff between us. Yeah. Colorado Public Radio presents The Wedge. The entire first season out now, everywhere you get your podcasts. Let's return to our panel discussion led by CPR's race, diversity and equity reporter Elaine Tassi. She's speaking with three Iranian-American women who live in Colorado about the atrocities in Iran at the hands of the government and its morality police. What is at the heart of the current uprising in Iran? What do you think is um, the desired outcome? Sheeta, do you want to start Iranians and Iranian women in particular are putting essentially their bodies on the front line for freedom. And I should stress that there is tremendous solidarity this time and and support for the request across the economic, political, gender, religious and the ethnic spectrum within and outside Iran. In my opinion, they're um, rejecting the authoritarian rule of the Islamic Republic and asking for a secular democracy. They are asking for freedom of thought, expression, religion, choice, an end to gender apartheid and for bodily autonomy. Um, Compulsory hijab is only one concern, though a significant one that is symbolically showing uh, control over the most basic rights of a woman. Um, and rejecting it implies a rejection of the state power over women's bodies. So it, I, I'm not underestimating it, but it is just one one of the concerns. Um, there, are in, another side to it uh, is is that um, I think the people of Iran are also fighting against environmental degradation and mismanagement, which are perpetuated by the regime. When you say degradation, could you explain what you mean by that? Right before the pandemic, there were protests 
um, over mismanagement of water resources and some of the decisions that um, the government of Iran has made about managing water and the building of dams and how that has led to really a devastating situation um, in terms of protection of the environment in, in Iran and especially the, the problem of water, but it, it, it is uh, widespread across the other issues um, as well. So this, this has been a topic of a lot of the protests in the past decade. Um, but and I, I see environmental movements connected to the feminist movement that is happening right now as well. So that, that's why I just wanted to mention it. It's not it's not only um, what we hear about women's rights, but they're connected to some of the struggles that the people of Iran have been having with environmental degradation and mismanagement. Mm-hmm. As well. All at the same time. What about yeah. you, Pupe? Do you have any thoughts about what the movement means and what is being asked for? Yeah, we started around women's rights, and it's still very central because I think it's also symbolic of the other fights that we are having. Um, There is also a right for a fair judiciary and justice system. Um, There is also an ask for the separation of the state and religion. There is also an ask for putting the government and the the job in the hands of people who are experts. Um, There is also an ask against corruption of the system. And we can't really separate any of these from one another. They're all in conversation with one another. Um, there's also an ask for just basic human rights, right? Um, even the right to burying one's beloved, right? Because, I mean, when they executed in the middle of the night, uh, Majid Reza Rahnavard, this was done without informing his family and he was buried without his family being there. Let's stop and talk about that for a minute. I was reading an article about him, and from what I was able to understand, he's the second person to have been executed, and it sounded as though his body was seen hanging from a crane, and they didn't inform his mother until afterwards, and that there was a conversation that was going on between the mother and either him or one of his lawyers where it was a friendly conversation with no mention of his execution pending? Yeah, she, when she last visited him, they were hopeful that he would be released. And then they woke up to a phone call at 7 in the morning that just basically told them, your son has been executed and you can come to his grave. Mm. These, these are unarmed people, mm-hmm. uh, unarmed, uh, basically self-defense in a situation that is very much unequal and then they are uh, sentenced to death by uh, basically no court no lawyers no way to for, for him to defend himself and um, you know within within two two or three weeks they um, execute him yeah I would just emphasize that that he was only arrested November 19th it's not even a month ago from the date of his arrest to now his execution and the first execution that we saw was last week, Mohsen Shekari, and his crime, his alleged crime, was blocking the street for protesters during a protest. So, you know, just again, like when you... Wait a minute, blocking the streets during a protest cost him his life? Exactly, right. So just imagine, 
you know, as an American, that just seems so unthinkable. Like, think about the number of protests that you've attended or seen. You know, people can go to a protest and then they can go home. You know, that's not the case in Iran. And when you hear about these kinds of stories and the the level of brutality and the arbitrariness of it, like, you realize reform is not possible. Like, the, the, the ask is women's rights for sure, but it goes so much beyond that. And you can see that, you know, regime change is really the only answer. I think in the United States, a lot of people are just not able to access a lot of the information about people who have been victimized. I was looking at a human rights activists news agency, and it said that as of December 9th, 71 children have been killed, and then 485 protesters have been killed. Are these statistics that you all are familiar with? Yeah. What are your thoughts about that? And these statistics actually are, um, when human rights organizations announce these statistics, these are people who they have been able to actually like approve their deaths based on like two um, reliable sources. So these are just like the minimum numbers. There are many families who are not yet speaking. There are many who um, they have not been able to get enough information with like those like double sources, right? So this is the minimum number that we are aware of. And then it, it also reported that over 18,000 individuals have been arrested, mm-hmm. that there have been over 1,100 protests in 160 different cities in Iran. Yeah. And I think, again, mm-hmm. it's important to emphasize the fact that when we talk about protests, it's not similar to here where you can peacefully come out in the street. People are risking their lives to even like walk their own streets. I just wanted to add one thing and just emphasize how dangerous even small motions or small signs of protest can be. With the example of um, Mehran Samak, who was shot and killed in his car for honking in celebration of the defeat of Iran in the World Cup. So even these, you know, what would seem like such a small act of protest can be so deadly and dangerous. Wow. So how would you say that this movement is different from previous protest movements? Uh, Pupe, do you want to start? I would say, like, in many of the previous uh, movements, there was sometimes, like, a lot of hope for reform being possible. At this point, no Iranian, or at least no Iranian that I have been talking to or, like, have been following on social media is thinking or speaking about reform. We are beyond reform at this point. So this is one of the big differences of this protest uh, movement happening right now. And I think people are also risking whatever they have. And the solidarity that we are seeing today, the amount of courage that we are seeing, the amount of creativity, like the number of songs, artworks, um, even like um, critical analysis of the situation. It's just like this outpouring of like all the energy that has been blocked so far. And it's just all coming out right now. And also another important difference is the amount of support and presence we're seeing from Iranians in diaspora. No previous uh, movement or protest, we witnessed such a presence and such a solidarity beyond the borders of the country. Shida, do you have anything that you want to add to that question about how this particular uprising is different from previous ones? Yeah, I think Pupe raised some really important differences. I just wanted to add that women's activism in Iran has always been critical to various political movements historically. But this time it is 
unprecedented in terms of women's rights being central and women leading a national scale revolutionary movement, perhaps for the first time in history, and not just in Iran. It, it, it is not the first time that we see extensive participation and action of Iranian women. It is just the extent of it and, and women's rights being central to it are, are truly unique. I think I would just echo what Pupe and Shide have both said and just also emphasize again that it's not new that Iranian women have been fighting for their rights. But at this point, we've reached this critical mass with momentum to really bring about change. So what can we do? What can people who are concerned do from here to have any impact on what's happening there? Well, I want to start with um, very simple things first. Um, symbolic gestures, I think they matter. Um, from people to people at a personal level, I would not underestimate the influence of these symbols, like wearing a, a pin in support of the woman life freedom movement in Iran, posting news and information, amplifying our voice on social media, just being aware yourselves, like what is going on. You know, we, we when when we named George Floyd, that that gave this movement power, and it, it's the same thing with Massa Amini and. Um, Mohsen Shekari was executed um, two days ago. The, the, just amplifying and naming them gives us power and helps us um, helps sustain us. But in addition to these symbolic gestures, I, I think there are some other specific things that we can do in, in, in the U.S. We can we can ask our elected officials to do a few specific things. And I, if there's time, I can just mention five of them quickly. One is that we want our elected officials, especially at the federal level, to um, hold the Islamic Republic's agents accountable in the court of law. Second, to apply targeted sanctions to the key leaders of the Revolutionary Guard. For example, freeze their assets, restrict their traveling ability. Three, we want the U.S. government to completely abandon the nuclear deal or any deal that gives legitimacy to this government. And the fourth thing is essentially uh, you know, increasing media coverage to shed light on the crimes of the Islamic Republic, increase visibility of, of the massacre that is happening now. And that's why we're so grateful for uh, CPR covering this story today. Um, and you, you can each do that through social media. And the fifth thing I want to mention is removing barriers on technology, internet, apps, things that help our citizen journalists in Iran, essentially, because there's no other form of a, a real a real journalism right now, uh, to get their message out and communicate with each other and with us. One of the other things that I wanted to ask you about that I read is that there are, it seems like about 10 other people who face execution. Yeah, um, can I actually, I want to say their names here. This is quite heartbreaking because we printed this list two nights ago for an event and Majid Reza's name was on here and he is not here with us anymore today. The other on the list are Hussein Mohammadi, Ali Muazzami Gudarzi, Mohan Sadrat Madani, Saman Sayedi, Amir Ali Gulami, Sahand Nu Muhammad Zade, Hamid Qara Hassanlu. Mohammad Berogani, Amir Nasra Azadani, Mehdi Karami. And these are the names we know. We are not sure if there are others also on the roll. Wow. What kind of an emotional experience are you having right now? Because it looks like you're 
eyes are welling up with tears just to say their names. It's very hard to be an Iranian in a body that is safe right now. I know that many of us are having nightmares. Um, I know that Farnoosh has not been sleeping at all for the past few nights at least. It's very hard to be functional in a country that is having a different life, a different experience, and then you are divided between two different realities. Um, it's like your body is here and not here. Mm-hmm. What about you, Sheeta? What kind of emotional experience are you having to have this conversation? Yeah, it's it's really hard to express. It. I mean, these are these are our children. Um, they're our brothers. Uh, the the age we're talking about twenty year olds in twenty year olds who are completely innocent, and if anything, they should be praised and um, you know medaled for bravery and for saving a crowd from you know tyranny and and protecting their their sisters and others in the crowd and yet they're being executed in the most inhumane way they're being tortured and forced into false confessions and then executed um, these are athletes they're um, our next scientists um, I, you know we are losing them one by one by partly inaction from um, the international community. Farnish, what about you? Do you want to finish our conversation with any emotional feelings you're having at the moment? I think I'd also just add, I am the age of this regime. So for the entirety of my life, this is the closest we've come to regime change. And there is so much hope that is built into right now, but it is also so painful because we're seeing this daily brutality and bloodshed and lives lost. And it's been just very, very difficult. I could share with you the story. I mean, there's so many stories, honestly. Like, there's a nine-year-old boy named Kian Pierfelak who was in his car with his parents. They were driving away from a demonstration and as happens in a lot of the protests and demonstrations the security forces will shoot into the crowd indiscriminately and um, you know in order to disperse the crowd in order to scare them it's a scare tactic and so Kian a nine-year-old boy was shot and killed and you know we know his name and his family has released some videos and pictures of him and in one of his videos where he describes some of his inventions he starts with in the name of the god of rainbows and so now rainbows have become this tribute to this nine-year-old boy who's been killed um, he, he wanted to grow up to be an inventor he was on his school robotics team um, and now um, he's he's he died and his mom you know, mourns at his grave, and um, and calls out to him when she sees a rainbow. And um, I have a boy named Kion, and um, so it's just been very, it's been very difficult. I have a Kion that 
um, is safe and home with me and um, this boy is not. I think that's the perfect place for us to stop right here because that allows us to kind of get a picture of everything that we can't really know about on an immediate level, but we can hear other people describe and we can hear in your voice, you know, the impact that that's having for not only people in Iran, but people here too. Thank you all so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. This this meant a lot to those of us in Denver and Colorado. It's It's been hard, so this meant a lot. No, I just wanted to ask your audience not to underestimate the importance of symbolic gestures. Um, again, people to people at a personal level, it will really help. CPR's Elaine Tassi speaking with Pupe Masagi, a writer and translator who teaches literary arts at the University of Denver. Farnoosh Family, who was born in Iran and moved to the U.S. with her family when she was five. And Shide Dashti, who teaches civil engineering at CU Boulder. They recently formed a group to fight for rights in Iran, aligned with the Women, Life and Freedom Movement. This song has become the anthem of this year's uprisings. Barai, which means four, is by Iranian singer-songwriter Shervin Hajipur. He was arrested two days after the track was released in September and later let go. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's a particularly American phenomenon, hillside letters and mountain monograms that hover high over towns and campuses across the West. The big M over Golden was one of the first, a carefully tended pile of white rocks proposed by a Colorado School of Mines senior thesis in 1908. There's a D in Del Norte, a P above Peonia. In fact, more than 20 letters like these dot the state. But during the Depression, folks in Palmer Lake thought up a different approach, to make a star out of light on a steep mountainside to the west. For three months in 1935, locals hauled posts up the mountain, then strung wiring between 91 bulbs to light their star in time for the holidays. It's been shining every December since, visible to anyone passing by on I-25 and guiding travelers on Colorado Highway 105 to the little town of Palmer Lake. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. Demand for SNAP benefits, known as food stamps, has been going up in Colorado. That's causing some issues in at least one county, where people are waiting longer to get what they need to buy groceries. CPR's Rachel Estabrook has the story. Judy in Grand Junction asked our newsroom recently through Colorado Wonders why it's taking so long for people in her area to be approved for the federal SNAP program. Judy hears there's a three-month backlog. I asked Susan Skyberg, a director for economic assistance in Mesa County. Unfortunately, yes, it's true. 
We are a few months behind. Skyberg calls it a perfect storm. More people are applying for food assistance. That's true statewide right now. At the same time, there are fewer people to process applications at the county level in this tight labor market. Skyberg says the staff they do have are working overtime. You know, and just trying to get people trained and in and able to do a caseload. She says that can take up to six months. Still, she says in Mesa County, We know these benefits are extremely important to individuals and families, and we're onboarding staff and training them as quickly as we can. She says one other county, who she's not ready to name publicly, may start helping Mesa process applications and bring down the backlog. But generally... The problem is that, you know, yeah... We can work with other counties, but everybody's kind of in that same situation. So very few people have the resources to help. As fewer people can process applications for food benefits, more people are putting in the paperwork to get help. Mesa County has seen a steady 13 percent increase in cases. Everything costs more these days, and that's likely driving more people to apply for SNAP. But Karen Clymer, whose nonprofit helps people apply for benefits, says it's also because more people are getting comfortable with the idea of asking for help. During the pandemic, a lot of families' lives changed, and people wanted to be helpful within the community. And so that help-seeking behavior started to increase, and it became less stigmatized. Organizations like hers have also popped up to help make it easier for people to apply. Right now, her group, called Hilltop Family Resources, is getting calls from people who noticed the delay in Mesa County in getting food assistance approved. She says they're anxious. Waiting on those benefits, it can be pretty stressful on the whole family unit. The sharp increase in the number of people who need assistance to buy food is hardly contained to Mesa, though. Compared to before the pandemic, statewide approvals for SNAP are up 24 percent. Instead of easing now, almost three years into the pandemic, the need is only getting bigger. Jesse Antonucci helps oversee the program on the other side of Colorado in Weld County. Over the last six months or so, we've seen a very sharp increase in applications for SNAP. According to the state, Weld is the county with the biggest increase, nearly 50 percent more SNAP cases compared to before the pandemic. Antonucci notes it's been particularly attractive to apply for benefits in this time. During COVID, the federal government upped the amount of money people can get each month, and that may be enticing people to apply. We do have a lot of households that would normally only qualify for the minimum which historically has been somewhere around the $20 a month range, that are able to get a little over $200 a month in SNAP benefits because we're in this public health emergency. Despite the increased demand, Weld County says it does not have a backlog of applications right now, but that the staff is under an enormous amount of stress trying to keep up. Some staff have used crisis counselors made available by the county. Antonucci's colleague in Weld County, Andy Garnon, says there's a lot at stake for the whole community. I think we are a tremendous source of economic stimulus. The amount of money that we issue to eligible households that's in turn spent in the local economies, we make a huge impact. When counties do fall behind, benefits can be given out retroactively. So if the application takes longer to process, you'll still get the money for the time you were waiting once the application goes through. In the meantime, in Mesa County, which does have a backlog for SNAP applications, the county is working with food banks to try to help people make do. Rachel Estabrook, CPR News. If there's something you're curious about in this state, let us know. 
go to cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders and keep an eye and ear out for crowdsourced stories like this each week on air and online. And that's our show for today with thanks to these Colorado Wonders. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.